0: in Philippians chapter 2 Philippians chapter 2 and we'll begin our reading this morning in verse 5 as we will attempt to complete this portion of the text this morning in uh, this hymn to Christ in verses 5 through 11 of Philippians 2 read with me if you will and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we are grateful for the grace that you've given us in Jesus. As we just sang together, we know that our hope, our confidence, our eternity is all hinged upon the sufficiency of your provision in our Lord Jesus Christ, and we know him to be all-sufficient. And so we thank you for the privilege it is to walk with you in truth through the provision you've made for us in your son. And I pray this morning as we've opened your word that we might truly see the excellency of Christ. We would see that he is superior above all things. And Lord, to know him and to know him continually through your word is what matters most. And so may we as Paul agree that to know Christ is everything. And today, I pray that your spirit would use the truth of your word in every heart, in every life. May you give us understanding and wisdom, discernment of your spirit. May you teach us and guide us in truth. And for this, we will give you the glory, the honor, and the praise. For you alone are worthy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And Be seated. Within our study of verses 5 through 11, which we've been here now several weeks, of course, in this particular portion of the text and throughout the study of Philippians, coming to this point, I've told you multiple times in leading up to this portion of the text that this hymn to Christ, also referred to as the Carmen Christi, is Paul's hymn to Jesus concerning the, uh, the humility of Christ and the exaltation of Christ specifically. And we're moving into that portion of the text This morning, I have pointed out to you that there are three elements to this hymn to Christ. Paul began this praise to Christ with this exhortation for us to have the same mind or possess the same attitude as our Lord Jesus. God has given us his spirit as we are aware. He has renewed our mind, given us the mind of Christ as Paul and Scripture clearly teaches us. And we are commanded, therefore, in verse 5, let this mind be in you. Now, again, when we read this passage, it, might be e- it could be easy for us to view this as though it's a passive uh, a statement that's being made. In other words, like, allow this to be. But, but more so, it's a, an exhortation that we are commanded to intentionally have the attitude of Christ, have the spirit. This, we do have the spirit of Christ, so have the attitude of Christ as we would live in submission unto him. And in the verses immediately following this hymn to Christ in Philippians 2 5 through 11, Paul then stated in verses 12 and 13, immediately following verses 5 through 11, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So here you see when Paul says, work out, and I know I mentioned this so many times, but I believe it's imperative that we do so when we address this portion of our tex- of the text at any given time, and that is that Paul does not say work for, he does not say work toward, he does not say work on your salvation, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in In you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So, Paul is not commanding uh, the Philippian church to attempt to live their lives like Jesus. No, he's saying, let Jesus live his life in you and through you. So, he's saying that we are to be conscious of this, mindful of this, and intentional and purposeful in submission to the Lord Jesus. And by the way, we'll look at this a little further in a moment, but as we saw last week in the second portion of this hymn to Christ, Paul uh, provides the excellency of the humility of Jesus Christ and how he humbled himself in becoming flesh. And we're going to, we're going to delve into this even more so this morning, maybe even than last week. But yet he, he became flesh, humbled himself, became a man, took the form of the likeness of sinful flesh, having no sin, and then even humbled himself to the point of death unto the cross even more so, which Deuteronomy says, cursed, as Paul referenced, uh, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree in Galatians, and that's a reference back to Deuteronomy when the scripture says that when one committed a sin and he were to die and they hung, if he were to hang on a tree, he is cursed of God. So that is a curse of God upon them. And so Christ humbled himself even to that degree and magnitude as we will see further in the text this morning. And so when Paul says that we are to let this mind be in you, as he says to the Philippian church, or let this mind be in us, we could say, he goes on to explain that in the following verses of 12 and 13, when again he says to work out, to live in submission, obedience to Christ, working out that which God's Spirit, God himself has worked in. So once again, this helps us to understand this hymn or praise to Christ, that it's not only provided to magnify the person and work of Jesus, which it obviously does. Yet it's also a call and exhortation for us or for the reader to follow his example of humility and selfless submission to the person and purpose of God the Father. Now, again, I want to be careful here because this has often been, uh, this, what I'm about to say and what I just said could be misunderstood. We never need to view Jesus as though he is only an example. He is not just an example. He is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is God's provision on our behalf. He is not merely an example. Yet as God in the flesh, he did set the supreme excellent example in all things pertaining to life and godliness and worship of God, submission to God the Father. And so we must not ignore that truth while also acknowledging that He's not merely an example. Some people would view Christ as though he is that example. It's more than that. He is Lord, Savior. He is God in the flesh. The Son of God manifested in the flesh. And so this is important to recognize. So we are called to follow his example of humility and selfless submission. While Paul begins this hymn with an exhortation to submit to the mindset of Jesus in the following three verses, verses 6 through 8, Paul then explains the mindset of our Lord Jesus by emphasizing the humility of Jesus to which Paul exhorts the Philippian church to exemplify towards one another. Now again, if you look uh, in, in, of course, uh, the the translation which we have before us this morning, verse 5, it ends in a colon, in the King James it does, and in that colon that is used, of course, in English grammar, a colon is used to join together two independent clauses, and yet the colon separates the two because the second clause is explanation of the first clause. And so when Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, he then is explaining this mind of Christ. He then goes on to explain the humility of our Lord. And so we began last week to delve into this truth, to look into this. We began first looking at the excellency of the person of Jesus. Now, before we move on to this statement um, and this truth, let me remind you again the emphasis of this epistle. Every epistle has a thesis statement within it. And you'll find that Paul's thesis statement in Philippians, and usually it's in the first chapter, and Paul's thesis statement for this epistle is in verse 9 of chapter uh 1 verses 9 and 10. He said, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Here Paul is saying that you may approve things that are excellent. And what he's saying is that you would regard that which is superior. And then throughout this book, we clearly see the excellency of Jesus being magnified by the Apostle Paul. For instance, again, in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul is saying it's superior to know Christ. And then he even explained further when he stated that he counted all things but loss. All things I once thought were gain to me. Here in Philippians, he states this. I now count as loss for what? The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. So he's saying all things and having all things, and knowing all things, everything is inferior to knowing Jesus. Christ and knowing Christ is all superior, superior to all other things. And that is Paul's emphasis throughout this letter. And so when we understand that, we now look at the excellency of the person of Jesus as Paul explains this in verses 6 and 7. And we looked at this last week. And when you look at verses six and seven, which we've already read, you see Paul points out the exceptionality of this example set by our Lord. And by pointing us to the excellence or superiority of not only the example, but Paul also points us to the excellence or superiority to the one who set the example. Look at verse six. Who, Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. This is a supreme example. Why is this a superior example? Because Jesus is the only one who could ever claim that he were equal with God the Father. And yet, he comes in the form of sinful flesh, humbling himself lower than the angels, and does so willingly in submission to the Father and his purpose and will being fulfilled that he might die cursed of God, meaning that God put, exhausted his wrath upon his Son for those who would come to faith in Christ. And so he... Poured out the, he made Christ to be the atonement, the atoning victim, if you will, for sin, that his wrath would be executed and satisfied in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And so, this, of course, is a, a supreme person. The fact that he is God in the flesh is the, the means by which this even becomes a reality uh, of, of our redemption. Now, let me say this to you as well, though, and I, I mentioned this last week. In most cases, and there, there's always. paradox within Christianity. There just is. Again, for example, I've said to you many times, in order for me to be strong, I must be weak because it's his strength in me, right? In order for me to spiritually live, I must recognize I'm spiritually dead. In order for me to have life, there's death involved, of course. For me to have victory, I must submit to God. So there's all these paradoxes within Christianity, if you will. And when we say paradox, here's the reality of it. It's not that it's odd. It's just odd from our perspective because we often have an upside down perspective on things. If we had an eternal perspective as we should, then we would recognize how this makes perfect sense. But so many people are striving to do and to be and become that they are trusting again in what they are doing. Hence, to submit would seem like failure. To die or to recognize death would seem contrary to living. And so they, they don't understand the truth of the scriptures because of what they are attempting to do not resting in the God's provision of Christ So we see here That when when he says who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God That there's a paradox that is present because in most cases If you recognize that there is a superior example a supreme Example then what you would find would be that it would it would Isolate that one who is superior in this example from all others now that is true of Christ but here's the paradox. It is through the truth of him being who he is and the supreme example, the superior example that was set, that he, not, he does not isolate himself from humanity, but he has redeemed humanity and reconciled us to God the Father. And so it, it's important to recognize this truth. Second, we looked at the excellency last week of the submission of Jesus, verse 8. It says, in being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So such submission and humility have never been demonstrated nor personified. And Jesus not only humbled himself to take on humanity nor the flesh, but as I've mentioned, he humbled himself to the death of the cross. And the gravity of such humility is emphasized by Paul in the statement, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So he's emphasizing not only did he come to die, but to die as one who's been cursed with taking on him the sin and and, and paying that sin debt. And so the humility of Jesus to come in the flesh, of course, was all for the purpose of him humbling himself to the death of the cross. Paul further stated in his epistle to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.21, "'For he, the Father, hath made him the Son to be sin for us, the sinner, who he, the Son, knew no sin,' that we, the sinner, might be made the righteousness of God the Father in him, the Son." And so what he's saying is Christ literally took our place and that the wrath of God was exhausted upon him and God made him to be sinned. Now that does not mean Jesus became a sinner. It is saying God judged Jesus as though he were the sinner. He viewed him as though all sin for those who would be given to him of the Father was laid upon his son and he was bearing that sin, paying for that sin. That now, as I've said to you many times, For those who are believers in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God has been exhausted upon His Son on our behalf. Which means there is not one iota of God's wrath reserved for me. I don't have to live in fear of God. Now, I live in honor and reverence of Him, but I don't have to be afraid of Him because I know His provision in Christ is all sufficient. And By the way, if you are sometimes afraid of God and sometimes not afraid of God, that is a clear evidence that you are not trusting in the all-sufficient provision of God in Jesus Christ. Because when could you not be afraid? When would you be good enough? When would you be holy enough? When would you be righteous enough in and of yourself to say, well, God and I are tight right now, but it's not always that way. No, that's ridiculous. I am accepted, made to be accepted in the beloved. We sang about that this morning. It's not that I become acceptable by what I do. It's that God has made me accepted in his son because he has accepted his son. So here's the reality of it. If you know Jesus Christ, and this is a beautiful truth that you need to understand taught throughout scripture. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been redeemed, if you are a follower of him, as long as he accepts, the God the Father accepts his son, I am accepted in him just as he accepts his son. And the only way I will never not be accepted is whenever he rejects his son. And that's never going to happen. So we have this confidence in Christ, and we know that we are secure in him. Verse 8 again being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Jesus humbled himself to the flesh, meaning that he came in the flesh to then die as God's sacrifice for sin, Isaiah 53, and throughout Romans and, and so on in Galatians. God, as well as declared by Paul in Romans, is the justifier, and the justifier must be just in order to justify. In Romans 4, or 3, I'm sorry, verses 24 through 26, Paul says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, let me set the stage for you before we move further. further. <clears throat> if you were with us, Years ago, through our study of Romans, then you're aware of this. But if you're if you have not been, you may not know this, or you may. But the reality is that in this portion of Romans, Romans one through three, of course, Paul is declaring, um, man, up to verse twenty-three or four. Paul is declaring that the the sinfulness and the condemnation upon mankind both jew and gentile he's emphasizing this truth that jew has no advantage over the gentile that all are under sin that all are guilty before god and these jews must understand that they are not with some spiritual advantage with god meaning as specifically first century Jews, but that's true still today as well. They, they had no advantage with God whatsoever. And so Romans clearly declares that. So in chapters 1 through 3, Paul's declaring the condemnation upon man due to his own sinful, inherent sinful nature and sinful actions that come forth from that sinful nature. And then in verse 24 or so of chapter 3, he begins speaking of justification and begins to talk of justification. All through chapter 4, he explains justification. Chapter 5, he explains the benefits of justification. And then, so as, as we view that, we understand when he says in Romans 3 24 through 26. Now he's beginning to introduce this truth of justification, explaining it to the reader of the Epistle of Romans. He says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation. He is the atonement through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Through the forbearance of God, now I must address this because this verse is so often misunderstood and people have such a tendency to subjectify the scriptures. This verse is not talking about your sins from yesterday or the sins you committed before you were even saved. Paul is dealing with Jew and Gentile here and he's saying there's no difference. He's saying there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. So when he says that that God has set forth Christ to be the propitiation, the atonement through faith in his blood... to declare his righteousness for the remission, remission of sins that are past. Remission is forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. This is the forgiveness of sins. But notice the next statement, through the forbearance of God. Let me give you, in in, Hebrews chapter nine, chapter 10 and chapter 11, if you understand its context, clearly speaks to this truth. Here's what Paul is saying. When he talks of sins of the past, he is talking about Old Testament Israel. Paul is writing in the New Testament. So he's saying Christ is the propitiation for the Old Testament believer. And the only way he comes to forgiveness of sins, the Old Testament believer, Romans 9, 10, 11, teach us it's not through the shedding or sacrificing of bulls and, and goats and so on and so forth, for it cannot, none of that can redeem man. In fact, most people, I'm gonna interject something here. Stay with me, okay, I'll come right back. Stay with me. Most people think when they read, uh, if you ask the average churchgoer today, I, I, would, I would venture to say that many would say that God required Old Testament sacrifices because it's through that sacrifice God was putting their sins away. But that's actually not what it was. If you read Hebrews, you'll find the scripture clearly states that, that there was no forgiveness of sin through that means and that it's through, let's just go there. Look at, look at Hebrews chapter 10. We'll just go there. How's that sound? And just read it and then move on. Verse ten, Chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. So here's what he's saying. He's saying that those offerings, those sacrifices, all through the Old Testament, that they could never provide forgiveness. They could never provide perfection. And perfection not meaning they no longer sin. No, they were not the perfect sacrifice. They were not the perfect redemption, obviously. And so he says it could not work. And he goes on to say, for if that were true, if they were made perfect, meaning that now they are justified before God in the sense of no more sin, he says, then would they not have ceased to be offered? because that the worshippers once purged should add no more conscience of sin. So he's saying, why did they continually offer if those offerings were sufficient to redeem them? But then look at verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Now, this is important, because what Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, is saying here is that There's no sufficiency for forgiveness of sins or atonement of sin in the Old Testament sacrifice. Had there been, they would have quit offering them. They'd offered it once and been done. And then he says in verse 3 that the reason those sacrifices even existed was to remind the people of their sins. So they weren't made to forgive the sin. They were a remembrance of the sin. I often have used this as an example. Let me give this. I think this is important at this this juncture. So let me pause for a moment. If you've ever had debt, notice the word forbearance in Romans chapter 3 that we just read. Through the forbearance of God. Did you see it? Not the forgiveness of God. Remission of sins that are past is forgiveness, but it was through the forbearance of God. And if you think about forbearance for a moment in a a monetary uh, manner, if you've ever had a loan and especially, I remember sometime back, one of the hurricanes had come through and, uh, and power was out for days and things such as that. And uh, some uh, of some, uh, creditors were actually um, reaching out. They did that with this past hurricane as well. And they're saying, hey, you know, we, we, we want to work with you. We understand that there's, you know, this, this catastrophe, so on and so forth. And so there was a debt I actually had at the time. And uh, that they, they contacted me. And so I talked to them. And here's what they told me. They said, "Well, here's what we'll do. They said we're willing to um, to take the uh, the principal portion of the payment and put it put it into the rear, and you know, paid in the rear. And so, meaning that they would take this portion of the loan and they'll move it back to the fine, you know, to another payment or add it to the final payment of the loan. But they said you will still owe us interest for this loan this month, regardless. And so, they took a portion of what I would have paid and put it. The rears and then said you're gonna pay the interest. And you know why they did that? Well, first of all, they want their money, of course. But second, that was a reminder to me that I still have a debt that has to be paid. And even though I didn't pay any principal payment, here's what that means: I did not help myself at all on the debt. All I did was help myself for a moment not to put out as much money as I would have had to normally, and I still had to make that payment in the end, but they made me pay the interest, which did not take one ounce of the debt away. When the scripture says that these offerings, those sacrifices were made for a remembrance of sin, let me put it to you like this. It is God's forbearance, and what that means is Christ is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. This is an eternal purpose of God, which he purposed in Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 3. So we are aware that this is not some second secondary plan of God. It's not plan B. It's not as though somewhere 10,000 years before creation of the earth, in eternity, God said, hey, I got a plan. No, this is eternal. The plan is eternal. Redemption's eternal. Christ is eternal. And so this was always how it was going to unfold in time because God had purposed it in eternity. And so we recognize the forbearance of God is that these sacrifices never took away any of the sin debt that was owed. All it did was remind them, as though an interest payment would, that there is a debt that has to be paid. And here's the sad thing about it for these people. They couldn't pay the debt. And the same thing is true today. You can't pay the debt. But there's glorious news. That's why the gospel is referred to, or the word gospel means good news. Because, again, there's bad news that precedes the good news. Here's the bad news. You are condemned under the wrath of God without Christ. There is nothing you can do to help yourself. You can't fix yourself. You can't improve yourself. You can't make any difference in your spiritual condition before God. But here's the beauty. Here's the good news. You don't have to. God does not require that because he's made provision for us in Christ. And so that's the beauty, of course, of the gospel. So when he says here, the remission of sins are past, he's referring to the Old Testament believer. In fact, and and to prove that to you, let's look at Romans, I'm sorry, Hebrews 9, 15. Turn there quickly, because I'm going to show you another verse. I told you Hebrews 9, 10, and 11 make this very clear what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3, 24 through 26. Look at, at verse 15. For this cause, he, Christ, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament. What is the First Testament? Yeah, it's not rhetorical. What is the First Testament? The Old Testament, or under the law, the Old Testament. So he's saying here that the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now look at Roman, or Hebrews chapter 11. Let's just turn there quickly. This is the great chapter of faith, as you are aware. And if you look at the latter part of this chapter, Paul, or I'm sorry, the, the, the Hebrew writer, uh, writes concerning all of these Old Testament examples of how that they, God spoke, that God gave them faith to believe what he says, and then that produced obedience in their lives. And again, I'm going to make this statement. Often I've made it. I'm making it again to remind you. Works never produce faith, but faith always produces works. And that's what James talks about as well. So if you look in Hebrews chapter 11, look with me. And he talks about how that, let's look at verse um 36. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having listen here, verse 39, and these all, all Old Testament believers, every one of them, these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise how does that make any sense so god says they had a good testimony of faith they were believing him he gave them faith they believed him but yet they didn't receive the promise look at verse 40 god having provided some better thing for us by the way if you recall with me what is the whole thesis of hebrews christ is better and here we find that again. Notice, God, having provided some better thing for us? What is this better thing? Redemption in Christ. That they, without us, the New Testament believer, should not be made perfect. And that's what he's saying when you come back to Hebrews chapter 9. Notice that again when he says... They which are called, might, under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance until Christ in time died in the flesh and rose again and ascended to the Father. The Old Testament believer was only receiving uh, 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 salvation through the forbearance of God until Jesus paid the debt. When he, the wrath of God, was exhausted upon his son for all the Old Testament believers and all the New Testament believers. And henceforth, now they receive the promise just as we receive the promise, but it did not happen in time until Jesus died. Hence, I will conclude this portion of this study with this Old Testament salvation, New Testament salvation, it is the same salvation, it's always through Christ. It was not faith plus works like some like to teach or claim. That is unbiblical. Never will you find that to be true. In fact, this passage states clearly through faith, they were for the forbearance of God is the means by which the remission of sins, forgiveness of sins was finally given to them as Christ was made a propitiation for those sins. And then in Hebrews 10, you see that Hebrews 9, you see that and even Hebrews 11. And so, and by the way, just a side note, I was not intending to get into all of that. So uh, we're going to move forward as much as we can for the remainder of our time this morning. And another side note, I am just now going to enter the introduction. <laughs> so Romans 3, 24 through 26, let's read that again being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission, for the forgiveness of sins that are past Old Testament, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So that he might be just and the justifier. In other words, People would say, having no understanding of who God is, I've said too many times, that proper theology must begin with theology proper. If you do not see who God declares himself to be in his word, you will never understand what God has said. If you don't recognize who he is as he has declared himself to be, then you're going to misunderstand that which he has stated. And here's what I'm saying to you about that is that people would claim, well, if God's God, why couldn't he just forgive sin? Why couldn't he just sweep it under the rug? Why couldn't he just say, I love you? And I'm just, because he's just. Do you have no understanding of who God declares himself to be? Remember, the, everything that comes forth from God that we experience and that we receive comes out of his holiness. In Isaiah and in Revelation, both Old and New Testament, the scripture says this, God is holy, holy, holy. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, holy. And the reality is holiness here means what? Set apart, sanctified, meaning there is none other beside God him so he is apart from all others and here's that being stated we understand that the love of god is a holy love the wrath of god is a holy wrath the justification of god is holy justification and the justice of god is holy justice there is nothing that comes from god that is not holy because the very essence of his being is holiness there's none other as he is Okay, I'm gonna tell you what we're gonna get into next week, okay? So I'm I'm debating here. I mean I'm 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 good to go, but you may not be or maybe you are good to go. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hmm. Those who truly love Jesus will persevere. So I intended to get through this this morning, and we're not going to make it. And so we're going to look at the third element. We'll start this next week, Lord willing. The exaltation of Christ in verses 9 through 11. Let's just read through this. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, there's much to deal with within this text, but here's what we're going to be looking at. I'll give you a skeleton outline here for this, okay? First of all, we're going to look at the magnitude of Christ's exaltation. And it's interesting for this reason. And you'll see this as this unfolds within these verses, that the exaltation of Jesus Christ by God the Father is equal to the submission and humility of Jesus Christ unto the Father. And he humbled himself, and God exalted him. But here's the question, now, and this, this helps to drive home the point of the excellency of his submission and his humility, as we pointed out in previous, last week. And here's how we see this really fleshed out in the life of Christ. I said to you that the Humility of Christ is excellent, which means what? Superior. That's the meaning of the word as used in this, in this text in, in Philippians 1, 9 and 10. That it is superior. And that's what Paul as well is saying when he says that all things I counted gain, I now count as loss for the excellency, for the superiority of knowing Christ. And so this word means superior, excellent. So when we speak of excellent, that's what we're talking about. Which if it is superior, in this case, it's not just superior to something, it is, it is superior to all things. So when we speak of the superiority of his humility and we speak of the superiority of his sacrifice and we speak of the superiority of his submission, we find that the superiority excellency or superiority of his exaltation is equal to his submission and his humility. We'll move on then look at the results of christ's exaltation which is in verses 10 and 11 so next week lord willing we will continue this study into this portion of the text this hymn to christ it's the exaltation of jesus christ but let me remind you of this truth in conclusion this morning Yes, as I mentioned earlier, Paul is providing us a, a view of the superiority of the person of Jesus, of the humility of Jesus, of the sacrifice of Jesus, submission of Jesus, and of the exaltation of Jesus. And he's providing us this view, of course, because as I said to you before, as we more clearly see who Christ is, it is only then that we will truly appreciate what he has done. Because we must recognize his person. We must recognize he is superior. We must recognize that this is grace. This is undeserved. This is unmerited goodness and kindness and favor from God. So, this is not something that we can accomplish or we can, that God owes us by any means. So when we see him for who he is, he is the light of the world. When we see him for who he is, what does that do? It It also causes us to see ourselves for what we are, which therefore creates a greater appreciation for what he has done in light of who he is and in light of who we are. So in this hymn to Christ, Paul is, is praising Christ and giving glory and honor to Christ, which is due unto him. But at the same time, it's not only he's praising Christ, He is saying, verse 5, remember the introduction of this hymn to Christ, let this mind be in you. And then he concludes this hymn to Christ by saying, in verses 12 and 13, as we already looked at, work out your own salvation with fear eternally, for it is God which worketh in you. So what I'm saying is this. We are to have, as Paul exhorted to the reader, the same mind, the same attitude, as did our Lord, demonstrating his humility as we submit to his spirit living in us. And as Peter exhorted in his epistle, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. It's talking to believers. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. And let me pause here for just a moment because if you recall, in the previous verses, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, Paul mentions being like minded. And do you remember what like minded is, is associated with throughout the scriptures continually? It does not simply mean that you're in agreement. Like-mindedness, study it out yourselves. We went through this when we were in that portion of the text, if you recall. But you'll find that like-mindedness continually, consistently in Scripture has to do with humbling yourself and preferring others above yourself as believers. And that is the context of this entire passage because because Paul says that we are to be like-minded, that we are to have the same uh, mind, the same purpose, we are to have the same spirit, the unity of, of Christ's spirit within us, we are to maintain that unity, Ephesians 4.3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul here is saying that to be like-minded does not mean we agree on something, to be like-minded means that we each and every one of us view ourselves in humility, preferring others before us, and we see the supreme, superior example for that. In Christ as also declared in John chapter 13 remember in John chapter 13 Jesus washed his disciples feet and in washing his disciples feet he says you call me master and you do well because I am your master he says but if I as your master wash your feet and serve you so are you to do one to another that doesn't mean we have to wash each other's feet obviously he's saying in matter of service and that's one of the most humble forms of service at that time to wash someone's feet So he's saying, I'm your master and I'm washing your feet. So if you see me as being your master and I humble myself to serve you, then that is the mind we are to have and the attitude we are to have as well. And so Peter says here, Be subject one to another, be clothed with humility. Isn't that interesting that he brings this in? And then he says, for God resisteth the proud. Now, we are to submit ourselves unto God, as he will say here in just a moment. But notice, first, he is saying, as believers, that we are to be subject one to another as the body of Christ. We are to humbly serve one another. Then he says, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting your care upon him for he careth for you. Jesus humbled himself supremely in submission unto the Father, and the Father has exalted him in superiority above all others. And we're going to deal with that. I need to mention this so you don't have any confusion, and I'm going to try to wrap this up quickly. But you need to understand this, and we're going to deal with this more in depth next week. If I can make it through the introduction. (laughs) And that is... That Jesus being exalted is not talking about his person as in his deity. And we're going to see that scripture clearly teaches. In other words, Jesus was with the Father in all of eternity, and he was not in any way humbled in the sense of coming in the flesh until he humbled himself and came in the flesh. So, when it says he is exalted and given a name which is above every name, it's talking about the humility of Christ in the incarnation and dying in the flesh and then being raised in a glorified body and now exalted. Because remember something, prior to Jesus coming, the incarnation of Christ coming in the flesh, Jesus did not possess flesh in eternity. He humbled himself and took on flesh. But now for the remainder of eternity, which is eternity, (laughs) he is in a glorified body. And it is this reality that has connected us and given us a relationship to God the Father. And so it's important that we recognize that. So when it says he's exalted him, you can't view Jesus as though he was less than the Father because what does this passage start with? Thought it not robbery to be... Equal with God. He was equal with God. So he's talking about eternity past. But when he humbled himself, he even made himself lower than the angels in becoming mankind, in taking on humanity. So therefore, God now has highly exalted him in his humanity because he's in a glorified flesh, even today. And when we, after the resurrection of the dead... We will be given glorified bodies and dwelling in eternity with Christ in what? A glorified body as is his. And he will still be supreme. Oh, we'll have a glorified body like Jesus. Oh, but he'll still be supreme. (laughs) He's still exalted above all. He is superior. Jesus Christ is excellent. He is superior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather around your word,